All right. So um, it seems like everybody has quite a bit to talk about um, in regards to this different experiences, personal um, experiences of, of suffering in, in the lives of people we know and love. Um, I'm not sure how many of you got to kind of talk about different reasons or um, explanations that you've heard in the world as to why we suffer. Now, here's the thing. You, you turn on the TV and um, it's just kind of full of, of bad news often. Um, you see evil. We, we get sick or we know somebody we love who gets sick. And here's the question that often comes to the mind and it happens for um, Christians, non-Christians. It's why would a good and loving God allow something like this to happen? Um, so just a few weeks ago, there was in the news, there was a story about a guy here in Halifax who um, murdered his own mother. Um, there was a story out of Winnipeg a few uh, weeks ago, probably about a month ago, but it, it, it talked about how this man had stabbed uh, a three-year-old boy, and a few days later, that boy passed away. And, and, and so you, you hear things like this, and you start to wonder, it's like, how, how can things like this happen? Um, last week, there was a story on CTV News, um, Just I, I saw it on Facebook, but it, the headline was, Mother Wanted for Murder after still baby stillborn with toxic level of meth. And so it kind of read, an arrest warrant has been issued for a California woman accused of murder after her stillborn son was found to have toxic levels of meth in his system. And so we kind of go, oh man, how, like stuff like that. Why, why does that happen? Now, I wandered down into the comments section. I don't know if that was wise or not. Um, but it didn't take me long to find something that I knew was just going to trigger um, some people. And so this woman said, Thankfully, God works in mysterious ways. No child deserves to be born to, into a drug-addicted lifestyle. And as soon as she wrote that, I was like, Oh dear, this is not going to go well. Like She's just going to get attacked um, for saying that. And it, it, this is what kind of usually happens. She says this, she gives her explanation, and it wasn't long people are saying stuff like this. God is so mysterious, it's like he doesn't even exist. Um, another person replied, there's nothing mysterious about this. How completely disgusting your God must be to watch everything starving, every, every starving and raped child, and do absolutely nothing about it. If your God existed, it certainly doesn't deserve to be worshipped. Your mindless, brainwashed, verbal diarrhea is absolutely unacceptable. You know there are zombies and unicorns in that book, right? If you aren't bright enough to overcome it, at least have the decency to keep it to yourself. It's beyond rude. Um, and so my, my point in that is something bad happens, and what can often happen is it's used as um, ammunition against God's existence. And so uh, the late professor, um, apologist, and author Ronald Nash, he, he makes this point. Every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism was and is and will continue to be the problem of evil. There was a, a recent national survey um, and, and the people were asked, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? The most common response in that survey was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? And so uh, David Hume, we've, I think we've encountered him so far in the study a few times, but he, he wrote this, Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. 
Is he able to, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Why then is there evil? And so I just want you to take a few minutes to, to respond to that, that quote and that thought. Um, why, how would you respond to that charge that if there's evil, if there is suffering, how can God be good and loving? Does this disprove God's existence? Can God and evil coexist in our reality? Why or why not? So just spend a bit of time discussing that. All right. So this, uh, th- what this comes down to is that an atheist would say that um, evil and suffering disproves God's existence. And so we have to ask this question. Um, is there a connection between evil and suffering and the lack of God's existence? And so, again, an atheist would say, because there is evil, because there is suffering um, in the universe, God does not exist. And so the atheistic conclusion essentially is that bad things happen because there is no such thing as a good and loving God. And so um, the, the existence of suffering in the universe has kind of been called the rock of atheism. They say this is irrefutable proof or evidence that God does not exist. Since there's suffering, God cannot exist. That's kind of their, their logic. Now, the, the existence of evil and suffering, this is a difficult question for us as Christians. Um, we can give theological answers to it, but it's a difficult one to kind of um, to, to answer, to, to give kind of a satisfying answer, because if God is good, if God is loving, it's hard. Why, why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Why do babies die? Why do people get cancer? Why do um, acts of terrorism take place? It's, it's difficult to answer it. And so evil and suffering, again, is, is more than just a theoretical problem um, or a philosophical problem. It, it's a personal problem. You don't just think about evil and suffering. You feel evil and suffering in your life almost every day. I, I know I heard, overheard some people just talking about how um, they've suffered with, with sickness. They've seen other people they love suffer. They've seen other people victimized. And so um, we all go through pain and suffering. We, we all experience it. You've watched that, the news, and seen people suffering. You've received that late-night phone call. You've, you've gotten sick. You've felt lost. You've felt abandoned. And so we all feel this. And so while we go through this, this topic, we've got to try and be as objective as possible as we look at it because our, ex- our experiences, our feelings, they can sometimes skew um, how we're going to look at this, how we'll receive some of these things. Um, it's an emotionally charged topic because you are personally tied to it. Every person is tied to it in some way. And so we've all asked that question again. Why did this happen to me? Why did this person that I love get sick? How could God allow this thing to happen to our family? Um, We know bad things happen. We know bad things will happen, but it always feels different when it happens to us or it happens to our family. Um, And so I, I want to just spend a few more minutes on this next question. Um, I'm a little behind in my slides, obviously. Uh, But this, why does our ability to engage with evil and suffering on a personal level make it more difficult to deal with philosophically? Does a philosophical answer lessen the pain felt when faced with personal accounts of evil and suffering? And how does this play into our conversations with people feeling the effects of evil and suffering. So just spend about 10 minutes on those questions, then we'll keep going. All right. So 
the reason we kind of talked about that is it's not just when we're dealing with people who are going through uh, a difficult time when they're suffering, it's not just enough to kind of give that philosophical answer and say, here's why. It's, it's, we've got to sympathize. We've got to understand that there, it's not just enough to give kind of that textbook answer. We've also got to understand and relate in it. Now, philosopher David Bentley Hart, he put the problem that we're, we're looking at tonight well. He said, one might well conclude that the world contains far too much misery for the pious idea of a good, loving, and just God to be taken seriously, and that any alleged creator of the universe in which children suffer and die hardly deserves our devotion. And so we've, we've been making this point. Evil and suffering trouble, trouble all of us. Um, now, there's, there's a good reason why evil and trouble... Uh, evil and suffering troubles us, and we're going to look at it. But, but that reason, we're going to see, it actually might point towards God and not away from him like the atheist would say. Now, we also have to understand that what, what you see that atheism is trying to do is put the problem of evil and suffering into uh, the Christian's court, saying you have to deal with it, you have to answer why this is here. But it's not just a Christian problem. Like every worldview has to deal with this question of evil and suffering because it's just a reality in the world. They need to provide an answer as to why there's evil and suffering. It's not, not just Christianity. And so what we're going to move towards is hopefully what answer actually makes the most sense. Now, I know we're, we're doing a lot of questions up front, but a few minutes on this one. Why does every worldview need to provide an answer to the question of evil and suffering and the next part, if you currently do or have ever held a different worldview than Christianity, what is or was your answer for the problem of evil and suffering? So just spend uh, about five minutes on that question and then we'll move on. So the question is, why does every worldview need to answer the question of evil and suffering? It's because every worldview has to give answers for the why, the reason, the way the world is that they're living in. You, you can't just point it out and say it's a problem. You have to say why it's a problem. How did we arrive here? Now, what are some common responses to evil and suffering? We'll look at um, three kind of common ones or popular ones uh, today before we look at Christianity. So, New Age. Um, New Age thought, kind of a, uh, well, something that's taking place a lot in our culture right now. Now, New Age philosophy, it denies the reality of or existence of evil and suffering. Um, and so, it's focused on meditation, praying, positive thinking. That's kind of what New Age is about. And it revolves around reaching a higher or greater state of enlightenment or illumination. So kind of the, the goal in New Age is to reach this higher state of um, or enlightened state of existence. And so um, what you see, though, is that this kind of thought, this, this idea is starting to creep into uh, Christianity. Um, and this denial, this rejection of evil and suffering, it's affected the church today. And so uh, in the book, Mark Clark, he talks about uh, going to the house of an elderly Christian woman. And her, her husband was in the hospital. He was dying of cancer. And so the woman was telling him about what her best friend said. And she said, my best friend, who is a Christian, will not come to the hospital with me to visit my dying husband and so Mark Clark asked her why, and she told him that her friend believed that if she went to the hospital, she would be acknowledging the reality that the man was sick, and in doing so, would give this false sickness power over him. And so the woman counseled uh, the wife of this sick man. She said, don't go and visit him, um, and don't say the word cancer. 
Because if you do, you are creating that reality in his life. Um, now we go, that's, that's ridiculous. That, that sounds ridiculous, but this is kind of a common way of thinking today. And so it's, it's a way of thinking, though, that, that denies reality. It's just like you can ignore that pain in your side, but ignoring it's not going to make it go away. Like you, you probably should go get it checked out or something like that. And so just ignoring it doesn't work. And if, if we have this thought kind of creeping into the church, it's unbiblical. And so the Bible clearly teaches that evil and suffering are very real. Again, you, you, don't, you don't just ignore them and say they don't exist. You don't get to sweep them under the rug. Another uh, common uh, way of explaining evil and suffering or how a common worldview explains it would be Hinduism. And, and we put it this way, karma. Um, that evil and suffering results from karma, an impersonal force of justice that operates like the laws of physics, causing good or bad things to happen based on whether a person has been good or bad in this life and in past lives. And so we put it this way, what goes around comes around. And so if you're a positive person, good things are going to come your way. If you're a bad person, bad things will come your way. But again, this, this philosophy, this worldview, it's, it's naive, it's a dangerous one. Because the underlying belief is that when somebody suffers, when somebody um, encounters evil done towards them, the idea is you deserve this. You did something to deserve this. There's no point in trying to change it because it is what it is. Just deal with it. It's just the way things are. You need to accept it. Just get over it. Now, the religious idea of karma... Um, it, it justifies, it legitimizes suffering in this world. And so here's the thing, with the, with the Hindu's worldview, um, Hinduism's worldview, or just kind of this karma, how do you offer sympathy? How do you empathize with somebody when they're going through um, suffering, when they're experiencing injustices at the hands of another person? You, you just really can't. You say, well, you deserve this. This is you, you must have done something to deserve this, so, so deal with it. Pay your dues. And so it's not really good. It's not a, a satisfying answer. Now, it's also, um, an, it's not an adequate answer to the question of suffering. It's kind of at best a form of denial, just kind of saying deal with it. And at worst, it just kind of propagates this, this cycle of accept suffering. It, it's just the way things are, and you deserve this. Now, in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, Jesus offers kind of a different, different worldview or different thought. He says, or it says, as he was passing by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus replied, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. And so what Jesus is saying is this man's blindness is not the result of uh, his sin is not the result of his parents' sin, anything that they'd done in this life or a previous life. He's saying this blindness is an occasion for God's power to be demonstrated before others. Now, atheism. Atheism is kind of the one that points the finger at um, Christianity and says, because evil and suffering exist, God can't. And this is, this is their argument. That's kind of what they keep going back to. That's their motto. There's evil, there's suffering, there's, there's wickedness, there's, there's bad things that happen. So a good, loving God must not be able to exist. Um, now, at first, when you hear that argument, I don't know if you've ever had to kind of refute that or had to deal with that argument. It's, it sounds compelling, 
But when you start to think about the logic of that argument, you're going to see it doesn't really hold up. It's going to quickly break down. And so just spend a bit of time on this. Try to think of some reasons as to why this argument, bad things happen because there's no God, doesn't hold up. Why does it break down pretty quickly? All right. So I've heard uh, I've heard some different kind of discussions going around, and I, you guys have given some good reasons based off what again I could overhear. But um, here's what it kind of comes down to: simply saying that God doesn't exist if evil exists doesn't make it true. Again, it's it sounds good at first, but when you start to think about it, it, it it's the argument's based on a lot of assumptions that that have to be proven. Um, and it's, it's, you can't just assume these things and go, okay, if there's evil, God can't exist. That, that's an assumption. You need to be able to prove that. And this is, is a way more difficult task than um, atheists and skeptics will often realize. Now, Alvin Platinga, the philosopher, he's pointed out that Christians believe in five basic premises about God and evil. The first one is God exists. The second one is God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. The third one is God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is wholly good, and fifth, evil exists. And so Christians are going, God and evil can coexist. God is good, God is loving, um, but at the same time, evil does exist in creation. Now, our atheists will argue that these, these assertions can't all be true at the same time, but um, Platinka, what he uh, suggests, or he says atheists must provide some proofs of why? In other words, it's not sufficient simply to say they can't all be true. Additional proofs must be provided. And certainly um, no atheist has provided and prov- uh, has, has been able to provide um, these proofs. Again, it's just assumptions, assertions. Now, some people have been um, trying to provide these, these proofs. Um, atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey, he argued this. A good thing, so he's speaking about God, always eliminates evil as far as it can, and that there are no limits to what an omnipotent thing can do. So what he's saying is God should eliminate all evil because he is all good and all powerful. Now this is the question. Why do we have to assume that in every case of evil, that it's a case where God could eliminate without uh, eliminate that evil without at the same time eliminating a greater good. So what, it, what he's kind of saying, uh, Platinga is, is putting back, he's going, this is like, if God eliminates that evil, what we think is evil, what if God in doing that eliminates something that's even greater later on? So he would keep going, or what if in order to stop said evil, God had to violate human free will? We would say that's not good of God to do that. Or what if in stopping an evil act today it would set in motion a butterfly effect that would cause a great scientist or a leader not to be born in the future? Again, creating a, a greater evil or a lesser good in the world. And so what Platinga is saying is that God is still good if he allows evil in order to retain free will in the universe or if it allows for a greater good in the future. And so having this in mind, we need to admit that it is possible for an omnipotent being to permit as much evil as he pleases, as long as that every state of affairs he permits, there's a greater good. So are you guys tracking with me what I'm saying here? 
Yes. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of going. We don't know if if eliminating that evil could eliminate something that's better later on in the future. Now, um, here's here's kind of the question. What if it comes down to this? What if eliminating an evil eliminates a greater good? Atheists don't really have a response to that argument that Platinga brings up. Now, here's the question, and we're kind of starting to turn things, is uh, my screen's not keeping up with me. Where am I? There, all right. How might suffering actually be proof of God's existence and how might the existence of evil push us toward believing in God? So just spend a few minutes talking about those. So uh, we've, we've read a lot of, of this guy throughout this, uh, this series, but we're, we're going to use him more because he's that so good. Um, but C.S. Lewis, he wrote, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. And so what happens is if you take God out of the picture in this conversation of evil and suffering, the the problem becomes even bigger. And that's kind of the problem that atheists have to face, the, 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 the problem that atheists find themselves in. Because when we experience evil and suffering, um, every person kind of feels this, that this is not right, that this is, um, this is something that we don't like. It feels disjointed. It feels wrong. And when we feel that, when we feel that evil, when we, or we feel that injustice, that, that wrong, um, that things are, aren't as they're supposed to be, what we're doing is, is we're showing that we have an assumption that there's a way that the universe is supposed to be and what we are experiencing is not what it's supposed to be. Now, the Bible says that God has put eternity into uh, man's heart. Uh, That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. I will say that we are designed by a creator to live in a world that is without um, sin and death. Then this is why we long for beauty. We long for justice, love, and peace. It's essentially, we were made for a different world than the world that we are living in right now. And so what, what kind of guys like Lewis and others would say is that when you encounter suffering and evil and it doesn't feel right, you're, you're experiencing kind of nostalgia. Um, you, you're going, there's something else, there's somewhere else that I, I want to be, I want to experience it, and this is not it. Now Christianity, it, it kind of comes down to this, but Christianity would say um, we have these moral categories for just and unjust, for right and wrong, because uh, God has given them to us. Now, that doesn't uh, satisfy every person. They will go, I, I don't believe in God. I don't think we need God for moral categories of right and wrong. And so many skeptics um, believe that we would still have these moral categories as a result of unguided evolutionary processes. In other words, they're saying we don't need God for morality. We don't need God for right and wrong. We don't need God to know what's just and unjust. 
Now, most of us can probably remember this if, as I start talking about it, but on July 20th, 2012, um, there was a shooting that occurred in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, and it took place during a midnight screening of uh, The Dark Knight Rises. That was the, the Batman movie. And so uh, a guy went into the theater, he threw out tear gas grenades, and he started firing several weapons into the crowd. And so multiple people were injured, and 12 people were killed that night. Now, in response to that, somebody wrote a letter uh, from God, and they, they were pretending to, to write from God's perspective. It attempted to describe where God was during the shooting, when all of that was taking place. And so this is, this is what, uh, again, written from God's perspective. It said, I was in the same place that I've been in every other horrible event throughout history. Nowhere, because I don't exist. And so it's, it was kind of trying to answer that question. Where was God in this shooting? Why, why didn't God prevent it? And this person's saying, well, God doesn't exist. That's, that's why he wasn't there. Now, people, people loved this letter from God. It kind of got shared around on Facebook. Um, and and it, it, they loved it because it's saying God didn't help because God's not real, so he can't help. But here's the thing, um, Clark, he raises this. He says, we need to ask this question. Where did people get the, uh, the sense that shooting a bunch of people in a movie theater is wrong? Where did that come from? Doesn't the fact that it bothers us raise the question of where we got the conviction in the first place? Doesn't it suggest that maybe someone gave us an understanding of right and wrong, and that we are now using it to put um, this guy on trial, and even using it in a sense, this sense of right and wrong to put God on trial, going, God, where were you in this? That's not right for you not to be there. Now, often people um, will say their moral category called evil, it doesn't come from God, but it's the result of evolutionary processes developed in our brain circuitry over hundreds and thousands of years based on what was best for society and what has helped us to survive in particularly harsh environments. And so again, we've, we've kind of touched on this um, at other times, but the way we think that what's right and wrong, they're saying that's based off of evolution. Now, good and evil, they are saying, are simply artifacts of what our ancestors were forced to believe in order to survive. Again, to make it to the end of the day. And so they're not transcendently true, they're not virtuous in any way, and they're not given to us by a higher power. They just are because they helped us survive. Now, this is, okay, we have to respond to this um, as, as Christians. What do we do with this that our our idea of right and wrong, just and unjust, comes from evolution, um, but not from God. That they weren't given by that objective moral giver who is transcended of creation outside of it all, who, who can kind of define and give absolutes. And so what do we do with this? Well, we have to think about this logically. If we formed beliefs only because the beliefs helped us survive, and so maybe we have those beliefs because they, they gave us comfort um, or, or they just, again, helped us give us an advantage over our enemy and not because they're somehow true or virtuous in and of themselves. What we need to do is go all the way with that thought. We need to acknowledge that there's no actual truth 
to any of our beliefs. If it, again, if it's unguided evolution and what we believe, what we think is only the process of what helped us to survive, we got to go all the way with that thought. We got to ride it to the end of the day and realize that there's no truth to anything that we believe. And so here's what truth does. Truth assumes that there is a moral order. There's a standard by which things can be judged as right or wrong, true or untrue. But if we believe stuff just because, again, it's um, advantageous to do so in a given moment or in an environment, um, and our agreed-upon beliefs are nothing more than pragmatic responses to obstacles in life, you have to take that and you have to apply it to evolutionary theory as well. Again, if, 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 it's, if it's, everything's just because we evolved this way and uh, these thoughts, these, these guidelines, these morals are just there to help us survive, we just manufactured them to help us get it to the end of the day to survive, we got to apply it to everything. You, you have to be fair in that. And so maybe we only believe in evolutionary theory. This is what an atheist has to realize. Maybe we only believe in evolutionary theory because it helped us survive not because it's true. And so Charles um, Darwin, he understood, he understood that this was a self-defeating contradiction. Um, and he admitted that if his evolution was true, he probably couldn't trust it because it was just the conclusion of an animal that's trying to mate and survive. That, again, at the end of the day, that's what evolution says, that you are, you're just trying to survive, you're just trying to reproduce and keep your, um, your lineage going. And so this is what Darwin said. He wrote this. Who can trust the convictions of a monkey's mind? And so, again, there, you, you can't. But if, if, again, we're just evolved from lower forms... There's no reason to trust it. Now, the atheist is kind of in a hopeless situation at this point because we draw conclusions because we believe they are rational and correspondent to truth. But if evolution is true, then we're not rational creatures at all. We, we just aren't. And so all truth claims, everything that we say is true, everything that we say is right, those, those kind of go out the window. They can't hold up, including the one that... that um, says that evolution is the way that we came up with moral categories. So their argument, uh, what it comes down to, their argument that our morals evolved through evolution, it just doesn't hold up. It, it falls apart really quickly. It's self-defeating. But that's not the only problem with the evolutionary argument. There's a second problem. Many of our moral values directly oppose um, those things that we would have developed if evolutionary survival was the primary factor determining um, our survival or our, sorry, our sense of right and wrong. So the things that we, we believe are right and wrong don't make sense if it's about evolution, if it's simply about surviving. So we, we see when people, governments, whatever it is, forcing their wills on people, um, just forcing them to do things, nobody goes, that's right. That's wrong. Nobody agrees with that. Um, we resist that. It pains us. Um, but according to evolutionary theory, again, if you go with this, this is something that we should accept. We should just kind of go along with because that's the process of, of human uh, struggle and mutation. Now, again, it makes little sense for us to uh, be opposed to genocide. It, it makes little sense for us to be opposed to the rich exploiting those who are poor, again, 
if evolution is how we arrived where we are. Because we would say these things are just the outworking of nature. It's, it's survival of the fittest. But again, our, our sense of right and wrong, of just and unjust, does not match up with what kind of evolution would bring us to if it were true. And so what do we do when our moral conclusions directly contradict um, things that nature by itself would have, would have told us are advantageous? It's, it's a hard question. Again, the atheist doesn't really have an answer for that question. Now here's, here's what it kind of comes down to. The atheist assumes that evil is pointless, that, that, that there's no good that can come of evil. But how do you prove? How, how do you prove that evil and suffering are actually pointless? It's difficult to actually prove that because you can't research every incident of evil. You can't research every incident of suffering to see if any good came out of it. But, but it's, it might actually be that the opposite is true, um, that suffering does have a purpose in the world, that, that this is why God allows it to continue to happen. And so just discuss these questions. What are the times in life that you've grown the most? Has it been uh, times when life was easy or when there's been trial and difficulty? And why do you think that is? Just based off hearing the discussion at, at most of the tables, I, I would say most people would say it's actually during those times of suffering and trial that you've, you've grown, you, that your life has been stretched the most. And, and you even look throughout history and see how nations have, have grown. It's, it's usually in, in times of difficulty that they kind of stretch, they grow. Um, and, and you can see that suffering often leads to some measure of good. I'm not saying that suffering leads to all things that are good, but to some measure of good. Now, um, again, a, a lot of people would say the greatest lessons that you learn in life um, often come through suffering. Like I was talking to somebody uh, just the other week. They said, it was during that time uh, where I had no job, uh, no income coming in. They said, that's where I grew the greatest in my relationship with God. And said, like, I wouldn't really trade that. And I was kind of surprising, but it was just like, that, that was a huge time for them. Now, the reality is that that pain, that suffering, it often will strengthen us. Um, and this, this is not just something like, we say this as Christians, but this is something that happens outside of the church that, that, uh, that, that people would say in the secular world is true as well. Now, in his book, David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell, he documents the lives of many successful leaders and entrepreneurs um, and who succeeded not in spite of challenges and suffering in life, but because of the challenges and the suffering that they faced. And so what he calls this phenomenon where you... you, you you succeed because of the challenges and suffering in life is the advantage of disadvantage. And so Gladwell, he cites a a case study from the University of London, um, and it it noted that a third of highly successful entrepreneurs are dyslexic. And so you've got guys like uh, Richard Branson, Charles Schwab, now, Sharon Thompson-Shill, uh, she was speaking at a prominent university donors meeting. It was filled with uh, successful uh, business people just who were, who were very well off. And she asked many of them um, if they had been diagnosed with a learning disorder. So in the midst of her kind of addressing the crowd, she said, hands up if you've been, uh, if you've been diagnosed with some sort of learning disorder. Now, half of the hands went up in that room. 
Now, Gladwell's um, insight was this. There are two possible uh, interpretations for this fact. One is that this remarkable group of people triumphed in spite of their disability. Um, They are so smart uh, they are so smart and so creative that nothing, not even a lifetime of struggling with reading, could stop them. The second, more intriguing possibility is that they succeeded in part because of their disorder, that they learned something in their struggle that proved to be of enormous advantage. Um, think about where Joseph, in the book of Genesis, he gets sold into slavery by his, his brothers. They throw him down into a well. They're like, well, we might as well profit from this. We're trying to get rid of him. They sell him to um, some people who are heading down to Egypt. And he gets sold into slavery. And he spends some time in prison. But eventually he gets promoted to kind of second in command in all of Egypt. And so what does he say to his brothers later on, years down the road? He says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the, repres- bring about the present result the survival of many people. So Joseph did what we often um, are, are quick to do, or he didn't do what we're quick to often do. Um, that, that when it comes to suffering, that the meaning behind the suffering will be immediately obvious to us. Sometimes it's, it's not so obvious. Sometimes it takes time. In Christianity, what it says is that there is meaning to our pain and suffering. Um, God is using it for our good, and the point of suffering is to conform us into the image of Christ. And so people borrow aspects of the Christian worldview uh, when tragedy strikes. Like if something bad goes on, what do they do? They say thoughts and prayers. It doesn't matter if they're religious or not. Thoughts and prayers to these people. Everybody kind of borrows from it. Now, um, Clark, he says this. It's because Christianity teaches that contrafatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-Karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. And so we, we won't understand all the reasons why we go through suffering, why God allows us to, to kind of encounter evil or go through difficulty in life. But, but again, it's possible that God allows us to go through it so that a, a greater good could exist. Now, uh, Platinga, he illustrates it this way. He says, suppose I ask you to look in a tent and tell me if there's a St. Bernard inside. In this case, I have every reason to trust what you say, since a St. Bernard is just the sort of thing I would expect you to be able to observe inside a tent. But suppose I ask you to look inside and tell me if there are any no inside the tent. Um, just for those who don't know, a noceum is a gnat with a big bite that is small enough to pass through the netting of a tent and so is too small to see. Now, I have no reason to trust your answer in this case since you can't see noceums. Here's the problem. You're assuming that if there's a reason for our suffering, it's more like a St. Bernard than it is a noceum. This, however, is simply assumed. It's not argued for. It is certainly at least possible that we suffer for a reason, but that that reason is not something we can easily detect. And so just spend a few minutes on this question. Think of times in your life where you've seen something bad lead to something good. And have you ever considered that evil may make way for a greater good? And what encouragement does this bring to your experiences. And maybe, I don't know, again, what, what people are bringing into this room tonight, but what encouragement might that be for something that you're facing 
uh, right now. So just spend a bit of time on this. So Christianity, what it, it offers is a God who's not distant from us. Um, it, it, it offers a God who's not removed from our suffering. And if you look at most other religions, what you find is that the God or the gods, they're removed, they're distanced, uh, distant, they're, they're cool towards humanity when they're going through difficult times. But Christianity speaks of, of a God, of Jesus Christ, who entered into creation, that he um, identified, empathized, he suffered for us because of sin, because of the evil, the suffering that we're experiencing. And this is what Isaiah 53, verse 5, it, it talks about. It says, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. And so, why did God become his creation? Why did God humiliate himself? Why did he suffer? Why did he die this awful death? Well, it was to save us from our sin. It was to um, alleviate that, that suffering, that evil that we experienced so that it would not be a permanent, ongoing, forever thing. So Christianity says that the suffering of the cross, it, it's, it's, not, it's not just to do that, but it reveals to us also who God is. And no other religion it gives you a God that can identify with your suffering, with what you're feeling in the midst of it. Like God gets your suffering. God understands it because he's gone through it himself. Now Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And, and notice what Paul is saying there. It's, it's all things. It's not just the good things. It's not just some things. He's saying all things work together for the good. And so when it comes to evil and suffering, what we have to kind of think about is, is, is not just about the now. We've got to also look to the future and see how God is going to use that for good, how God can use it. And it might not be blatantly obvious to us right now. It might be more of a no than it is the St. Bernard. But God, we have seen his track record, that he uses things that look blatantly evil, that they look irredeemable, and he uses them for good. And so here's what it kind of comes down to at the end of the day, that every worldview, they have to answer this question of evil and suffering. But Christianity answers it best by saying Jesus answers our suffering by using it for our good. And so there's a few questions left on that, that question sheet. And so for the remaining time, I just spend some, some uh, time discussing those.